0: Um, we need help.
1: We need immediate help. It's very red. I can see it. I
0: need to get my kids out of here. You
2: need to evacuate yourself. Do it now.
0: People was, like, shocked, and crying and
3: every word. On the night of October 8, 2017, a fast-moving wildfire in Northern California killed 22 people. The Tufts fire burned tens of thousands of acres of land and more than 5,000 structures.
4: Most of us were all seasoned dispatchers. What I was hearing on the other end was complete chaos. So if I can't send everybody help, what can I do? I can prepare them to help themselves.
3: I'm Chriselle Pele. Rose Adietta and I are your hosts for But Next Time, a podcast about the ways people tap into their resilience and organizing strength when catastrophe hits.
5: I'm Rose. Chrishell and I met through a network of grassroots advocates working on issues of racial justice, housing, and land.
1: When it rains, it pours through my
2: living room windows, my kids' window. The mold is deep inside of the walls and people are extremely sick. Years later, they still have not repaired a lot of these homes.
4: There's never a time where you can't use your voice. Your voice is your freedom. Over the course
3: of this series, we'll meet activists and organizers committed to building justice and a sustainable future. You're listening to But Next Time.
5: In October of 2020, Chrishell and I got on the phone to regroup. Chrishell had prepared to evacuate her family from Houston in late August when Hurricane Laura swept through. And on September 9th, the smoke from the wildfires north of my home in San Francisco had been so intense that the skies were eerie and dark.
3: Unbelievable. I could not
5: imagine to wake up and have the day be night. Everything was red, looked like
3: Mars. In Houston, we were watching Hurricane Laura, and it just missed Houston by a hair. The people in Houston, especially those folks that are the most vulnerable, really have PTSD when it comes to any type of tropical storm activity coming our way. Just watching my kids, is it going to be like it was for Harvey? Or is it going to flood in our house?
5: When we started this podcast, we wanted to focus on how disaster affects communities that have already been marginalized. Then COVID happened. We had to focus attention on what each event could teach us without letting the chaos take over.
3: We didn't want to lose sight of the hard-won lessons we'd spent time learning before the pandemic, because with each turn of events, the same themes kept resurfacing more strongly, with more clarity. And we set out to put those lessons in perspective. So let's go
5: back in time a bit and pick up where we left off, in Santa Rosa, California. We met people behind the scenes of the region's famed wine country. Farm workers, emergency workers, tenant organizers, people who'd seen systems fail in 2017 during the Tubbs fire in ways they knew were avoidable.
4: I think the biggest black eye the county took was the lack of communication to our Latino community during 2017. Even if Spanish speakers got the different alerts that went out, they were not in Spanish. People had no clue what to do.
5: In our last episode, we met Alma Bowen, an emergency dispatcher in Sonoma County for many years until the Tubbs fire sent her in another direction.
3: Alma left her job and started a nonprofit to help her community prepare for disaster. When she had to evacuate during the Kincaid fire in 2019, she posted a video for her organization's followers.
4: We just had to evacuate the evacuation center in Hillsburg. If you are in the process of evacuating, be safe out there.
3: She and others she worked with have been in many conversations with aid organizations.
4: The American Red Cross had zero volunteers that were fluent or even knew Spanish to any degree. So how do you talk to each other?
3: Unlike in 2017, they were allowed to set up a Spanish language
4: information table at the Red Cross evacuation center. And made sure that there were friendly faces that spoke Spanish right up front to greet people coming in.
3: Alma remembers what she saw as farm workers and their families arrived seeking aid in 2019.
4: Most of them had been working all night because as soon as that fire hit, Most of the vineyard management companies wanted their their grapes picked. It was the end of the season. They didn't want to lose their crops.
5: Alma told us that local nonprofits staffed information tables at every shelter.
4: That's who you're going to want servicing your community. The people that already know what that community needs. We have relationships of trust that you can't build just because you pop up your little sign in front of something. We're talking with the Red Cross because our hope is that it just becomes part of what they do.
5: Local agencies made some headway connecting Spanish speakers with disaster information and resources, and the county hired a Spanish-speaking public information officer. But the problem was bigger than that. Many farm workers in the region do not speak English or Spanish. They speak indigenous languages.
2: Lo malo es que no daban las lenguas indígenas. Ahí lo que no saben la gente es que Imagine
3: not being able to understand disaster alerts because they're in a language you don't know. Maribel Moreno is one of the people we met from the Triqui community of Oaxaca, Mexico. She had been in California less than a year when a relative called her the night of October 8, 2017, to tell her about the wildfire.
2: Hey, mi tía me llamó por teléfono diciendo de que había había incendios ahí alrededor de Santa Rosa y nos dijo que nos evacuáramos porque ellos trabajan en el campo y vieron el incendio. Éramos muchos como casi 10 personas. Teníamos un carro chiquito que
5: With ten people in a small car, they had to fend for themselves, driving into the unknown. We met Maribel Merino two years later. When the Kincaid fire hit in 2019, she went to shelters to translate emergency information. She wore her traditional woven and embroidered tunic, called a huipil
2: las mujeres se nos porque roguipi, nos eh, la, que, que ayuda
3: Maribel had found other indigenous people from Mexico who were interested in keeping their traditions and languages alive as they struggled to provide for their families in Northern California one of the people she met was Julio Sariano. He's Mixteco, and he came to the U.S. when he was 10.
0: Ticacueño, Santo Domingo, Tonalá.
3: Julio's father, brothers, and uncles work in the vineyards of Sonoma County, and many of the women in his family are hotel workers.
0: Most of these uh, recently arrived immigrants um, only speak their native language, are very deeply connected to their culture, uh, but also that makes them um, Um, targets for discrimination and exploitation by uh, both Hispanic communities that are non-native and by uh, white communities.
5: Mariano Alvarez, who we spoke with in the last episode, is a community worker with California Rural Legal Assistance. He sees firsthand how indigenous monolingual speakers get the hardest, lowest-paying jobs, while some of the Spanish-speaking immigrants move up the ladder, becoming drivers, foremen, contractors. Mariano is also from Oaxaca, and his native language is Tliki.
0: In the wine country, the majority of the farm workers is indigenous. Mm. A lot of growers want indigenous workers because they work very, very hard. And they pay you if you bring indigenous to their group. So they say, oh, migrant, which is indigenous, we're going to put you that workshop. La Unión Indígena es una organización fundada por la necesidad de luchar contra el genocidio cultural y el genocidio linguístico.
5: Maribel, Julio, and others who host the radio show are part of an organization called Movimiento Cultural de la Unión Indígena.
0: So, Unión Indígena comes from a legacy of resisting erasure, both historically and contemporary times, and also building power from those you could say had the least power. We survived the organized extermination of indigenous people. Now um, we continue to die every time a language dies. Society might not think we're dying, but um, every time a language dies, that's the existence of how you see the world and how you relate to the world. And every time um, someone says I'm not indigenous anymore, it means we died in some way.
5: The cultural knowledge of indigenous peoples is of tremendous value to these communities and to all of us. As wildfires have become more frequent in California and the West, there's been a lot of debate about how to manage forests. Some have called for a return to traditions of native people who practiced deliberate burns for thousands of years.
0: We acknowledge that we are on uh, Pomo land, and on mishuwa Wapo land. We know that these fires wouldn't happen if climate change wasn't a thing, but also if the First Nations had the sovereignty and authority to practice their science, uh, which would be to burn in the right time, in the right places, so that you don't have these kind of fires.
3: In 2019, Maddie received alerts from Sonoma County on her phone about a fire in Hillsburg. She was worried about people in her community who might not have access to information, and she immediately contacted radio station KBBF, the radio station we spoke about in our first episode. The station played a critical role during the Tubbs fire by broadcasting emergency information in
2: Spanish. <laughs> Sí, también estuve traduciendo algunas alertas o dónde estaban las alertas, dónde las personas eh, tenían que evacuarse o tenían que estar listos. Eso también yo yo veo que les ayudó mucho. Maribel and Julio created a radio show that broadcasts in
3: their indigenous languages.
0: Hola, hola, hola. Estamos aquí. Radio
2: Autóctona Indigenista. In addition
5: to broadcasting, they posted their alerts on social media.
0: Eh, vamos a dar en unos cuantos minutitos una actualización y resumen en vivo en la KBF de la conferencia donde funcionarios del gobierno de California. Cal Fire, the, se dedican a organizar los bomberos. Entonces se va a dar en triki y en mixteco. Eh, por de
2: ahí que de, yo sepa, eh, este creo que y... fue ah, el ah, primer ah, año donde estuvo traduc- traduciendo en lenguas indígenas, porque el año pasado yo no ni escuché en el rad- en la radio, y en Facebook no había visto nadie que haya traducido.
0: Translating to Spanish has improved significantly. That's not the best solution for Indigenous communities, but it it helps a little because some people can speak some Spanish.
5: Julio went on to say that it should be mandatory for government agencies to provide translation. Failure to communicate can be deadly in an emergency. They can also prevent people from getting access to opportunities in everyday life that are guaranteed by law.
0: A falta mucho para que se traduzcan lenguas indígenas, como lo vemos nosotros, no nada más es una dificultad, pero es como un mal servicio, un es contra la ley, este es nuestro derecho tener intérprete debido a, a la ley de de derechos civiles el título 6. We see this a, a a deadly negligence that violates the Civil Rights Act. It's just a moral right.
5: In March 2020, we had just returned from a trip to Puerto Rico. There, we met with people on the island and from across the United States. They'd weathered disasters and had lessons to share about ways to help each other. Right after we got back, The COVID-19 pandemic confined many of us to our homes. Wine country was still reeling from the wildfires, and now there was a new disaster to deal with. No one had been prepared for a global pandemic.
3: Maribel and Shulio took to the airwaves to broadcast public health information in their indigenous languages. Alma made public service announcements. For local officials and organizations
4: in Spanish.
3: She took protective equipment and information directly to workers in the fields.
5: Another person we caught up with was Beatrice Camacho. She'd been helping to form a tenants union after the wildfires in Sonoma County. We called her to find out how COVID-19 was affecting people there.
2: The biggest thing right now that we're seeing is folks fearing eviction, and it's something that's so traumatizing. We keep hearing over and over, shelter in homes, don't go anywhere, and that's impossible when you're being evicted from your home. We realized that nobody in the county was making any effort to ensure that tenants were aware of what their protections are currently.
5: It's pretty disheartening that city officials just don't see the need to move quickly on something like that this?
2: Yes, definitely. So we're hoping that finally we get some relief for our renters here in Sonoma County who are experiencing just the brunt of this economic crisis.
3: Because we were locked down and adjusting to this new norm, Rose and I had the time to see how our own neighborhoods were responding to this crisis. In Rose's neighborhood in the Mission District of San Francisco, she witnessed a remarkable example of deep collective organizing and mutual aid. I've
5: lived there for almost 25 years, and I love the spirit of the place. It's home to me. When I walk out my door, there's so many familiar faces. People know each other. They care. Then there's the cultural beauty, vibrant murals, the scent of sweet bread, the sounds of rancheras and reggaeton, the soft mix of languages, Spanish, Mayan, English. As an organizer, I also feel something intangible about the people here. We're used to making a lot from a little and in the mission, we've created something for the whole world to savor. In the early days of the pandemic, when so many people in the mission were getting sick, I saw a COVID testing site and a hub for food and services pop up a few blocks from my house. I watched in Oz, they serve hundreds of people every day. Local leaders, people I know, initiated and ran these efforts. A year into the pandemic, I visited Valerie Toulier-Lewa to find out how the Latino Task Force had organized to make such an important impact on our city.
1: The Latino Task Force formed within the first week of Shelter in Place. There, you know, has been a, a history of activism and for generations. And so there was a couple of us, uh, what we call veteranos, veteranas, who came together that first week and said, hey. This is a pandemic, it's gonna hit our community, and it's gonna hit it hard. We just know it.
5: As lockdowns began, people had no safety net.
1: The schools shut down. You have parents who are monolingual. They don't have Wi-Fi. So we really tried to to get families connected. Uh, We also knew that people began to lose their jobs. So we began with the Mission Food Hub, and it has grown to three times a week, feeding up to 9,000 families. Just so many people putting in the work sitting at the tables, boxing up the food. How did you deal with fear when so many people were getting sick? There was no fear. We come from a line of community activists that when we see the fire, we don't run from the fire, we run to the fire. We knew we had a job to do and it got done.
5: Valerie explained that the Latino task force, 32 nonprofits in all, didn't just happen. It's the result of decades of work, relationships, and sophisticated political advocacy. An essential services hub helped thousands of people with rent relief, legal services, filing their income taxes, applying for jobs, and affordable housing.
1: We also developed a trilingual website. It is in Spanish, Maya and English. We have a large Mayan population here. I want to acknowledge that the city did not know how to communicate with our community.
5: I so appreciate what you just said. Over Zoom, Chrishell joined our conversation.
3: I'm actually in Houston, Texas. Oftentimes here in the South, we look to California as like the utopian place, so where everything is much better than it is in the South. So I really appreciate Uh, you raising that. So you're in Houston? Yes, I'm in Houston. I I was actually born in Houston. I'm from Texas originally. okay.
1: Valerie
5: explained that the group's effort extended into other Black and Brown communities, including Bayview Hunters Point, an historically African-American neighborhood.
1: We knew that Latinos were oftentimes 15 times more likely to get COVID, but we also recognized and called out that although we had COVID more, The Black community died more from COVID. So we're very clear that we're also advocating for other communities of color. That's not just about us.
5: Valerie went on to provide an example of transformative organizing, a campaign to get COVID testing in the mission. Until November 2020, 70% of the testing in San Francisco had been done miles from there. Most testing happened in the Embarcadero, a touristy, upscale part of the city.
3: So the testing wasn't reflecting the reality in the city. The infection rate at the Embarcadero site was about 2%. In the Mission District, it was 14%, the highest rate in the city. Other Black and brown communities also had rates four or five times higher than the Embarcadero site. One thing that I think has always been a problem is that
1: we are not listened to. Our stories are not validated. We know our people are getting sick. You don't have to tell us. We know that they're going hungry. You don't have to tell us. But we still needed that data.
5: UCSF wanted to conduct a study in the mission, and they had to work fast. The Latino Task Force knew this partnership could be really valuable, but they wanted it to happen on their own terms.
1: Because oftentimes, you know, institutions come and study the hell out of communities of color, and then they do their PhD or their paper, and then they move on. And we said, no, 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 you are going to report back to us what you find. That's
3: true in so many ways. Doctors, researchers, academics, policy experts, with their training and education, need reminding that they work in the service of others. San Francisco learned this in the 1980s when AIDS surfaced and thousands of patients and their allies mobilized to help one another and push for effective treatments. Without these communities' efforts, the professionals can't do what they do. So let's not get it twisted.
1: Our community is allowing and giving you permission to bring your services here. You're here to serve with humility and respect. Good morning.
2: Good morning. We start testing at 10 and probably end at 3 p.m. today. Comenzamos 10 and terminamos a las 3 con las pruebas. Okay. So
1: let's face the east, everyone turn to the east. The sun rises every morning to tell us that we have a new day of life. I ask for everybody to take a deep breath in and a deep breath out. For the community to be vulnerable, for the community to stand in line for a test, for food, for services, that's saying I feel safe here. I trust you here. You speak my language here. You welcome me here.
2: we um, And they'll be signing up uh,
1: people
2: as they walk. when When the
5: task force began the COVID survey in the mission with UCSF, there were plenty of hurdles. Task force organizers knew an online survey wouldn't accurately reflect the reality of their neighborhoods. They needed to go door to door, but it was only six weeks into the shelter in place, and the disease experts and city
3: bureaucrats believe no one would answer the knock. These were organizers who had worked on campaigns, done field work, and phone banking. In four days, 450 people knocked on 1,400 doors within one census tract. They approached each door as many as five times. Using a buddy system and iPads, they registered people for COVID testing appointments at a local soccer field or school. As a result, 4,200 people came out for tests.
5: The data gave them everything they needed to know. All the people who tested positive were people of color. Most of them didn't have the option to stay home. They had to work. A third of their households brought in under $50,000 a year in one of the most expensive cities in the U.S., Collecting this data was not an end point for the task force. It was a beginning and a way to leverage more resources for the community.
1: As soon as you know you're positive, we take care of all your basic needs. That way you can stay home.
3: If you have, you know, eight in your household, we'll bring you two food boxes, whatever you need. The task force went on to do 70,000 COVID tests in the southeast sector of San Francisco for predominantly Black and brown communities. If they hadn't pressed for that, the reality of the pandemic in the city would have been hidden and the response would have been much less equitable.
5: When vaccines became available, the task force was responsible for tens of thousands of shots.
1: COVID has taught us so much. What I think is important to share about the Latino task force is that we're not going to just criticize you. We are going to give you a plan of action, the solutions that we need in our community. You just back it up with some resources. We'll back it up with our resources. We got plenty of people power. We got plenty of heart. We got plenty of, of grit. The
5: Latino Task Force not only leveraged millions of private and public dollars to help people in the mission survive a pandemic. They maintain local control of those resources by demanding respect and refusing to compromise. When organizers do that right, they can protect not only their communities, but their entire cities.
3: They changed the way large institutions and government agencies operated this time. In our next episode, we'll head to my city, Houston, where our response to the pandemic was very different. There, A clash of state and local politics undermined the effort to control the spread of COVID. But everything we learned when recovering from Hurricane Harvey taught us how to leverage our legal rights and the power of the ballot box.
5: We're your hosts, Chriselle Pillay and Rose Arrieta, We produced this series with our senior producer, Leah Mahan, who edited this episode with story editor Cheryl Duvall. Catherine Mondo mixed the sound and Fernando Arruda wrote the music. Thanks to Rosalia Valencia-Tau, our translator and archival researcher. And thanks to KQED and Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX for 911 calls and dispatch tape.
3: But next time, it's part of the Rise Home Stories Project, made possible by a grant from the Ford Foundation's Cities and States Program. Jolu Productions and Working Films offered leadership and support. Executive Producer, Luisa Dantas. Supervising Producer, Paige Wood. Impact Producer, Anna Lee. And Julia Steele-Allen. Associate Producer, Kati Diallo. Special thanks to Amy Kenyon, Jerry Maldonado, and Lane Kaplan-Levinson.
5: To learn more about the Rise Home Stories project, please visit our site at risehomestories.com. For more about But Next Time, visit us at butnexttime.com.